God is the perfect Father. He knows each and every one of us intimately. And he also works with tireless patience to teach us how to surrender in faith to him in order to love him and to love each other. Now those who fully trust in him will have his character developed in them. He also gives his children every good thing they need. He is patient with their sincere questions and his answers about the future include both hardships and deliverance. And finally, he gives his children who live in obedient faith towards him good gifts at his own expense. But, on the other hand, children who continue to live in selfish depravity will eventually run out of time. They will come to a point where they will not and cannot turn themselves back to him, and as a result, they will suffer great loss. Now, all of this that I have said is illustrated by today's passage, today's story that we heard of Abram, Avram actually, for the Hebrew pronunciation, Avram and the Lord Yahweh. Yahweh makes a covenant with Abram to give good land to his descendants. And when he does this, he says he will expel the grand, the, the children of the grandson, Noah's grandson, Canaan. Why? Because they went deeper and deeper into depravity and iniquity until it just got to the point where they would not, so they could not, come back to him. So as we... Um, Examine this in more detail, and we're now ready to do so. We will together find that, and this is hope, Avram received the covenant from Yahweh in darkness. In darkness. Now, I did a hinge verse here. Five weeks ago, we looked at the first half of this chapter, and the conclusion was, as a result of Avram's faith in Yahweh. Yahweh reckoned it, thought it, counted it to him as righteousness. And this now is the beginning of the rest of the chapter, which has three parts to it, three chronological parts. And we'll start, the first part is after Yahweh says that he will give Abram, basically his descendants, the land, he instructs Abram into a covenant with him. So the first part of this is Abram is asking the covenant Lord, how can he know? How can he know his descendants will indeed possess the land? Let's take it sentence by sentence. He said, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, to give you this land to possess 
and inherit. And I will develop that more later. So we have the call of Avram from Ur, which means flame. It's also part of the root for life. Now by the roads of the day, because they didn't try to go across the desert, it was 1,000 miles from there to Beersheba in what is southern Judah, where eventually Abraham would spend most of his time, even though he didn't own the land, he settled near the place which means the well of the sevenfold oath. But about halfway there, he stopped with his father in a place called Haran, where Har means mountain in Hebrew, so it was a place of mountaineers. It was a mountainous region. And only after his father died did God renew the call, give him a sevenfold word, and he went down to the land of Canaan. And you can read all about this at the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. And so then Abraham responds, Udonai, which means Lord, Yahweh, how can I know? How can I know I will possess and inherit this land? And I, I love this, people. I think sometimes we're afraid to question God. But the eternal three-in-one God and Savior does not mind sincere questions arising out of a heart of faith in him. And he will answer Avram here. He'll answer the question, but first, Yahweh instructs him to cut a covenant with him. So continuing on, we heard this, and it sounds weird to us, but Avram cut three animals in two, and he put the halves opposite each other. So he commands Avram, take a three-year-old cow, and I had to look this up on the internet, who has never given birth to any calf. That's what a heifer is. Also take a three-year-old she-goat and a three-year-old ram along with a turtle dove and a pigeon. Now these last two are very important in God's bigger story. When Yahweh was revealing to Moses on the mountain, not only the ten words, but all the little details, whenever a woman would give birth to a child, she had to purify herself 40 days after a son or 80 days after a daughter. And there were prescribed animals to be brought for this purification. But for an extremely poor woman, she would bring these two births. Now, this did come about almost 500 years after Abraham. But also, if you remember the Christmas story, this is the same offering that Mary presented for Jesus, these two birds. Well, Abraham did this. He cut the animals in half and put them opposite each other. Now, as a general rule, Abraham, Abraham, he would promptly obey God. We can find examples when he didn't, okay? He wasn't perfect, but he was an honor roll student. In fact, if you were to look at Hebrews 11, the honor roll of faith, he gets five verses for his life. And now we come to the real heart of the matter, and maybe afterwards I'll ask you, those of you who are here, how many of you have ever heard this before? 
We need to understand ancient covenants, how people in the world made covenants in the second millennium BC. It's about 1860 BC right now. So that we know what God does here in this story. Okay? So, whenever a servant would cut a covenant or enter into a covenant with his master, they would slaughter animals, they would cut them in half, they would put the two halves about three or four feet away from each other, making kind of an aisle. And then the lesser party to the covenant, in this case the servant, would walk between those animals to seal and complete the covenant. And what he was basically saying by this action is if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, may it be done to me as it was done to these animals. In other words, it is, it is a blood covenant, and under the penalty of death do I break it. Now, when two equal parties might do this, then they would both walk between the two pieces, saying it was a mutually binding covenant. And if you want to look at it, it's on the back of your bulletins this morning. 1,300 years later, at the time of the exile, Yahweh brought this whole concept back to Jeremiah with a little more detail than we have in Genesis. And then part one ends with birds of prey were coming down because here's this meat and all this good stuff to eat, and Abram drives them away. And again, I think this reveals something of his heart. He's going to let nothing get in the way of this covenant that his God is making with him. And now we come to part two, which is kind of a prophetic interlude. So as the sun is setting, a deep sleep falls on Avram before Yahweh tells him what will happen to his family over the next 400 years, a broad scope of the future. So after this deep sleep, behold, terror and great darkness. And then he tells Avram his descendants will be enslaved aliens. None of this is good news so far. So when the sun went down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Who's the actor of that sleep? Who made it happen? Yahweh, God. And behold, a horror, a horror, and deep darkness fell on him. So the sun goes down before this covenant was finalized. And then God put Abram in a deep, deep sleep, and behold, terror. Okay. Can you put yourself in his position and try to imagine this? But here's the beautiful paradox of God. I remember when it first occurred to me about my third time through the Bible, God is the ultimate paradox. And it's also a great comfort that even in a great and terrifying darkness, God is always faithful to keep his covenant and provide for people with obedient faith in him. So again, we're beginning to see 
Avram received this covenant from Yahweh even in great darkness. And then he said to Avram, know with a certainty your descendants will be aliens, that is strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them as afflicted slaves 400 years. So now we have this oppression. It's the beginning of the answer to Abraham's question about the future. His offspring will suffer oppression as slaves. And this is a fixed part of God's plan. It will not change. Okay, that's the bad news, but God always has good news. And he says, I am also judging the nation so that they will come out with great possessions and you will die in peace. So literally he says, and I also am judging the land. They will serve as slaves. Afterwards, they'll come out with a great wealth of possessions. So Udenai, which is the Lord Yahweh, He's already provided for this future deliverance when they will take much out of Egypt with them. I used this same reference last week when God called Moses out of the burning bush. It's in Exodus 12. And then as a little aside to Avram himself, you yourself will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. This is not just a promise for Abraham, we can be encouraged to know that if we live by the same faithful obedience of Jesus and the Father, we will receive peace at the end of our lives here on earth. And then he says the fourth generation will return here because the iniquity of the Amorites, now that word means sayers literally or people who speak, it is not yet full. See, here's where I will take people when they say, God isn't fair and how can he judge people and condemn them? He's more than fair. He never judges iniquity which is perverted rebellion against him until there's no possibility of turning back to him. Okay, and, and this name is the general name for the people living in Canaan. And I think what's being implied here is they can speak what is right, but their actions betray their words. They contradict their words. So what is Yahweh saying here? The land will belong to Avram's descendants after 400 years of oppressive slavery. You see, very simply, Yahweh fulfills his covenant. And now we come to the climax, part three. Then God ratifies his covenant by pledging to die himself if the terms are broken. This is, this is mind-blowing, people, and I know the first time I heard it, it went over my head, but I hope we can work through this together. You see, in thick darkness, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of the animals as Yahweh 
cut the covenant to give the land to Abram and his descendants. So let really in thick darkness behold this smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now I've already told you the actions of a covenant. This people is grace. We know from the Apostle Paul that the Sovereign Lord lives in unapproachable light. And some five times in John's Gospel, Jesus is identified as the light. So what is God doing here with these two sources of visible light going between the slaughtered animal pieces? God is showing Avram that he is graciously holding himself responsible for the fulfillment of this covenant. Avram, who should have passed through the pieces, according to the customs of that day, can do nothing. He's flat on his back, paralyzed, in a deep sleep. Now, going back to this promised possession of an inheritance, we need to balance everything that we hear in Scripture or read in Scripture. To obtain the inheritance, God's people must come to the inheritance willingly in the face of any opposition to obtain it. But God will defeat that opposition. So again, we went through Philippians a few months ago last year. And there's a wonderful truth in Philippians. We must all understand how God works in his children so his children can work out the salvation they graciously received in him. But the ultimate doer is God. Our responsibility is to cooperate with him. So we're told in that day Yahweh literally cut a covenant. He cut it with Abraham that his descendants would be given their land, a huge chunk of land from the river of Egypt all the way up to the river of Euphrates, which actually means fruitful. It's a good and productive land. So again, I'm going to restate it. God takes the oath on himself. Covenants in those days were cut, not made. It wasn't just a piece of paper signed. This term comes from the partners of the covenant, cutting the animal in two and walking between the pieces to bind themselves under the penalty of death should it be broken, should it not be kept. So when Udunai, Lord Yahweh, walks between the pieces, he's indicating he himself is willing to die to ensure this covenant is kept. So understood in its historical context, this story is a beautiful foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I don't know, some of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard this, but you've been told that Jesus is in every book of the Bible. Here is Jesus in Genesis 15. He died to initiate the new covenant. This pledge was for the covenant of the land. 
This is truly good news. God gave himself over to death. So we do not have to die for our sins and our rebellious iniquities. If we turn to him in faith of what he has done in the death of Jesus the Savior, our sins can be forgiven and we can be his adopted children, citizens in his kingdom, which is growing on the earth today. This is the new covenant. And remember, it began with three hours of darkness that covered the whole face of the earth, every time zone, as Jesus died on the cross. Three Gospels testify to that truth. So we all have the same opportunity to receive Yahweh's gracious covenant that Abraham had. Now, this last year has shown us beyond a shadow of a doubt, the world is getting darker and darker and darker, day by day, year by year. But this is the time that God's light gives salvation to humble, surrendered people, desiring to live lives of faithful obedience to him, just as Avram did four millennia ago. And Avram received this covenant from Yahweh in great darkness. This darkness does not have to be a terror to any of us if we're in Christ. And now we come to the list of those ten displaced Canaanite nations. Okay, they had Hebrew names because Hebrew was the language of the people. So let me give you the names of these ten peoples in English so we can be on an equal footing with the first heroes. Smiths, like blacksmiths, metalsmiths, hunters, Easterners, terrors, village dwellers, giants, speakers, zealots, dwellers in clay soil, and threshers. And of these ten names, there's only one of them that has a negative connotation. The bottom line here, then, is all people may enter into God's gracious covenant. The problem was these people were ultimately excluded from God's grace because they refused to repent of their iniquity. And God is just because he's very, very patient. Let me just restate this. He gave these peoples 400 years. God considers people as a community. They had 400 years to repent and come back to him. That's four generations because a biblical generation way back in those days was measured from the age of the father at the birth of his first son. And if you remember, Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. So four generations or 400 years, they could have repented and not been expelled from the land, but they just would not, they could not. And so then Yahweh fulfilled his covenant. He had cut with Abraham. Much later, around 1400 B.C., under Joshua, when he gave the land finally to Abraham's descendants. But I think if you meditate on everything that's said here, 
God is more than fair. To his people who followed him by obedient faith, they got the land. To those who refused to repent of their ways, 400 years of waiting patiently, it was finally time. Yahweh will always fulfill his covenant. So let's wrap this up. After he reckoned Abram's faith to be righteousness, Yahweh gave him a word of inheritance. And then after Abram asked him, how could he know? Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram in deep darkness. And as Abram was flat on the ground, Yahweh's luck walked between the dead animals, symbolizing he would be willing to die if necessary in order to fulfill his covenant. People on this first Sunday of Lent, as we prepare to take the sacrament of communion, because of his great father love, Yahweh gives great grace to his children, even in deepest darkness. This story tells us that Yahweh cut a covenant taking the heavy lifting on himself to his beloved Abraham, a child of faith who was becoming like him through faith. He gave it in a moment of great darkness. This is our hope.